Hello everyone, today is August 9th, 2021, and today on Parenting News and the Culture War, we're going to talk about some California schools that have children chanting to Aztec gods. And parents lay it out for the school board. Um, remember that video I showed you of that Antifa teacher? Wow, did the parents react to that. I'm going to show you a few clips of what they had to say to the school board. Another teacher sues the school board over firing uh, because he would not call a girl a boy. And he tried to be accommodating as much as he could. You're going to see about that. Um, now the CDC is telling us how to speak. They've told us a lot of other things, but now they're saying this is how to speak. It's interesting. Um, Bank of America says even toddlers are racist. And Forbes magazine deletes an article from a PhD teacher who's trained in trauma-informed instruction because it says that masks are harmful to children and um, that wasn't woke and that wasn't the, the narrative, right? So they deleted it. Um, kids are getting school credit for programs outside of a school setting in New Hampshire. That's really cool. Of course, we'll have dimwits and darlings, and that's coming right up. I just wanted to remind you real quick that these parenting news and the culture war episodes are also available on podcast, on Spotify, on Apple and Google Play and all that. Uh, so if you would like to just listen to them, you can do that too. Okay, so before we get started today, I just want to remind you to subscribe. I am new in, on this channel, so I'd really appreciate it if you take a minute to push that subscribe button. That would be awesome. All right, so first we're going to talk about the parents who sue a Cal some California school district because they do not want their children chanting to Aztec gods. Believe it or not. I, I'm sure you can believe it by now, right? That that's happening in California. This is from the Christian Post. Parents of students in California public school system have filed a lawsuit against the state's Department of Education in an attempt to remove a chant to Aztec gods that's part of the new ethnic studies curriculum. The lawsuit says ethnic studies model curriculum has, approved, has been approved for the Golden State's public schools, which serve approximately, approximately 6 million students in some 10,000 schools. Now, it does say in this article that even though that's curriculum that's been approved, it's still voluntary, but many of the school districts in, that, um, in, that, in those public schools have chosen to go ahead and use that in their classrooms. And the curric curriculum includes a section of affirmation, chants, and energizers, including um, an in lack ek affirmation, I don't know what that means, which invokes five Aztec deities, the lawsuit adds. Although labeled as an affirmation, it addresses the deities both by name and by their traditional titles, recognize them as sources of power, and invokes their assistance and gives thanks to them. In short, it's a prayer. The legal firm is Thomas More Society, on by, on, and they're, they're doing this lawsuit on behalf of Californians for Equal Rights Foundation. Um, our clients have both a religious and civic objection to the Aztec prayer, and they do not want their children chanting it, being asked or pressured to do so, or risk, risking ostracism if they refuse, said Paul Jonah Partner, 
with the Thomas More Society Special Counsel. The Aztecs regularly performed gruesome and horrific acts for the sole purpose of pacifying and appeasing the very beings that the prayers from the curriculum invoke. Now, can you imagine having your child chant to Aztec gods that did that? The human sacrifice, cutting out of human hearts, flaying of victims, and wearing their skin are a matter of historical record along with sacrifices of war prisoners and other repulsive acts and ceremonies the Aztecs conducted to honor their deities. These are the deities that they're having children chant to in the California schools. Any form of prayer or, and glorification of these bloodthirsty beings in whose name horrible atrocities were performed is repulsive to any reasonably informed observer. That is really disturbing, is it not? Another thing that they said later on in this same article the co-chair of the curriculum, and I can't even say his name, it's C-U-A-U-H-T-I-N, Cahutin, I guess, I'm, I'm not sure. The co-chair of the curriculum, the one who developed it, developed much of the material cited throughout the lessons in which Christians, specifically those of European ancestry, are viewed as the source of evil to be resisted and overthrown. So this is a racial situation going on here. White Christians are guilty of theocide against indigenous tribes, the killing of their deities and replacing them with the Christian faith, Cahutin argues in a chart. The ultimate goal, according to Cahutin, is to engineer a counter-genocide against whites. Investigative journalist Christopher Rufo wrote about the issue in City Journal in March. Dr. Richard Land, the executive editor of the Christian Post, previously noted in his weekly column, Quote, this is all so comprehensively evil and destructive, it is hard to know where to begin. Criticism of this dangerous, divisive, retrograde cultural vandalism. The idea that a tax-supported public school system would or could be used to unleash this vicious cultural and spiritual poison into our young people's consciousness is both extremely offensive and quite possibly illegal. I would say so. So that was from the Christian Post. You know, if you have your children in a public school in California, that's just not a good thing. You never know what they're going to do, what they're going to come up with next. They've already gone through all the other woke stuff. So I really hope that you'll consider getting your children completely out of those public schools in California. I wanted to read you this article because we're talking about the culture war, right? And so the culture war is a battle, and it's interesting that NBC News is now pretty much acknowledging that. Um, from NBC News, schools become political battlefield, it says with little quotes around it, in culture wars. Trump cultivated. It says Trump cultivated them. I'm like, no, this was going on way before Trump came around. Here's part of the article. Of course, it's landed to the left and acting like this is a bad thing that these conservatives are getting in the way, basically. Schools have become the focal point for culture wars fights that animated former President Donald Trump's base and have been advanced by conservative activists and influence since he left office. They are so behind the times. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> this has been going on way before he was a candidate at all. Conservative grassroots activists have zeroed in on local education policy with a Tea Party-esque fervor for months, spanning debates about reopening, how to teach U.S. history, and required masking. Now conservative personalities are urging followers to run for school board seats, 
that have rarely generated much interest, while dozens of activist groups focused on schools have sprouted to advance the fights. The influence of F the effort can be seen at nearly all levels of school administration. State legislators have passed bills to restrict what can be taught. Restrict what can be taught. Yeah. No. Gender theory? No. Yeah, we want to restrict that. Uh, and a lot of other things that they're teaching that are indoctrination theories. That's what they are. Republican governors are locked in standoffs with school administrators over district masking policies. School board meetings have devolved into shouting matches and some have even turned violent. Longtime operators in, education, in the education world say they've never seen anything like it. Normally, our kids have been off limits, said Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, one of the country's largest unions. We had tension over Common Core. There was tension over other issues, but in modern history, since the huge desegregation battles, kids have been off limits. Now they're, they are the battlefield. I'm like, really? Kids have been off limits? Not on your side, they haven't been. They've been attacked from all over the place. And what's happening now is parents are finally waking up and saying, no more. It's only a battleground because the left has begun to attack the children with their ideology. And since that attack is happening, parents are coming back and fighting the battle. That's what's happening. If the left wasn't trying to indoctrinate the children, there wouldn't be a battle at all. But that's what has been going on. So obviously there's going to be a battle with that going on. And speaking of battles, I wanted to tell you as a follow-up to last time, I showed you this Antifa teacher in the school. And wow, talk about parents standing up. It's about time. That's all I can say. It's about time they did. And I have a few more comments about that, uh, the parents speaking up and all, and why they didn't before. But I want you to watch this video, and this is of the parents standing up at the school board and saying, no more of this. We aren't going to have this anymore. Watch this. I speak for my son and any child who doesn't have a parent to be their voice. What has been exposed about Gabriel Guype by Project Veritas is exactly what I was concerned about happening at Babcock Elementary. Twin Rivers Unified School District, whom was and is not allowing parents or guardians on campus. As educators, your job is academics, not morals, not values, religion, political ideology, or anything outside of academics. Some of my best experiences in high school were discussing current events and social issues in my classes. But not once, not once, did I ever know how my teacher felt about those things. I had my suspicions, everyone's human, but I never knew if he was a Republican or Democrat or she, if she was conservative or liberal. I didn't know. And that's the type of discussion I expect in our social studies classes in this district. I've heard, like everyone, anecdotes around the country of left-wing indoctrination in schools. And people would always tell me, oh, that's just, that's just an isolated incident. Don't worry about it. Well, it's hit home for me now. For, with absolutely no warning, my daughter, who's a junior at MP3 High School, was told that her constitutional law class this year would be changed to social justice. No, no parent input was given whatsoever. I contacted the teacher. I was assured that critical race theory would not be taught. I was told that, that this would not be an, an issue, but it has become one. Hello, I'm Monique Hawkman. We have been quiet for too long, 
about you trying to take our rights away as parents. We were silent when you took away our medical and religious exemptions away for vaccinations and when they became mandatory for our kids to attend school. We were silent when you mandated these masks on our children. When the CDPH and Cal OSHA knows that at maximum they're ten, worth 10% effective. We were silent and some unaware when you began mentioning sexual preferences in kindergarten. Yeah. Yeah. We have been silent when you began teaching explicit sexual education in eighth grade and not giving us this information ahead of time. Race is being taught. The first day of school that my daughter goes, her teacher tells her that white is the worst race there is. Thank you for allowing me to speak and I also want to thank Project Veritas for exposing this. You guys would have done nothing because you did nothing when these students complained. And when a student complained, Mr. Guy stood up before, Guy stood up before the class and bullied him and said that if this flag bothers you, you must be who it's supposed to bother. He told the students to put their photos up on the wall to identify their ideologies. Children do not come to school to identify their ideologies. They come to school to learn to become productive citizens. I want to quote Mr. Gipes. Uh, uh, the reporter asked, you know, how do you get the students to do this? He said, and I'm quoting, I, I scare the out of them. Okay? That is child abuse. And this... Not only is his termination need to be taken effective immediately, but I believe a criminal investigation needs to happen immediately. More importantly is the accountability. If a reporter who comes and dons press credentials and says, hey, we have a clear case of abuse, we, please, we, want, we want to show you this video, and they're turned away, and the cops are called on them, you guys are public servants. You're taxpayer funded. We pay everything here. Who's monitoring the classroom environment? Who, did, did somebody not go around and see the only two flags that should be in a classroom are that one and that one? So um, I'm outraged, of course. I'm furious about this. I know the indoctrination in the schools have been going on a long time. We know that the Antifa organization is no different than the brown shirts were for the National Socialist Party before the Nazis came into power. Okay, that, that thing goes on and on, I'm telling you. These parents were livid, which they should have been. But I do have something else to say about that. As I listened to these parents and others that I didn't show because it went on and on forever, <laughs> one parent after another being upset, I asked myself, why did they let it go? Now that there's a group that got mad enough to stand up and say something, why did they let it go when they were mandatory vaccines and they, if they didn't want to do that with their children who didn't believe that was the right thing? Why did they let it go? You know, why did they do it then? Why did they sit back while masks were required if they didn't think that masks should be required? And those are small issues compared to they're mentioning sex preferences in kindergarten we sat by while this happened. Why did you sit by then? Why did you sit by when there was sex ed in eighth grade without notifying the parents ahead of time? Why'd you sit by, by with that? Why? You know, and the, the racist stuff. Some of these parents that I, I didn't show, it, some of them were the parents that I showed and some of them were other parents, but they said, well, I walked in the classroom and I saw that, you know, that Planned Parenthood sign and I saw that Antifa thing and I saw this and that and these are other classrooms but this guy's classroom especially 
And well, I kept my mouth, you know, shut because I thought, well, this is just a class and, and they're monitoring what goes on and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, why did you keep your mouth shut? You know, I'm thinking if I went into the classroom and I saw that in my kid's classroom, that kid would not be going back to that classroom or that school, you know, until they had remedied that situation. So as much as I appreciate these parents standing up, and I do, yay for them, good for them. But why did they wait till this to do that? You know, and why do you still have your children going there? One of, the, one of the parents said, my child just graduated last year and now I have another one who's in this school. And I'm like, why do you have another one in this school? When, the guy, when he graduated, he knew this, this had gone on at that point. I'm like, right, are you not thinking that same thing? I mean, my goodness. Another lady, she got up there and said that her daughter had come to her and told her a bunch of these different things that had been going on. And she started naming all these things that were going on in the school. And then she waited till now. She had her kids still going there. And then she waited till now when all the other parents are stirred up so she could come up and say something. People, this is a war. This is a culture war. You have to stand up. When you see something going on that's wrong in the school, you have to stand up then or you need to take your children out. That's what needs to be done. This is an interesting story. Back on teachers and schools, it seems like a lot of what I'm talking about is schools and teachers, and that's because of that article I just said. You know, it's the schools and the and the battleground is in the schools, so that's why there's a lot of teachers and things we're talking about. Well, this is a Virginia teacher who was fired because he wouldn't call the student by the pronoun that identified the student as a male when he knew she was a female and he tried to be accommodating you should I'm going to show you you can see in this this uh, clip I'm going to show this clip was from let me see the daily signal they made a video about this case and so I took some clips from the daily signals documentary that they made about this but I want you to see this and I think it's really interesting how accommodating this teacher was. I think he was way more accommodating than I would have been. But why don't you look at it and see what you think. It would have been the end of the school year, 2018. A student of mine, 14-year-old girl. I had had her in class the previous year. So this was the end of her second year with me. Gave me a handwritten letter where she explained that she was transgender, that she had adopted a new masculine name and that she wanted to adopt a new masculine name in French class. She asked me what I thought and I said, we'll be fine. We'll work on a new name for French class. I didn't have a problem with using her new name and that's what I used in, in class. I wasn't using feminine pronouns to, to refer to her because I, I didn't want to provoke her. I understood her point of view and respected the fact that she could choose to think what she wants to think. It's not my place as a, as a teacher to pronounce any position I might have on the subject, but I couldn't in good conscience designate her via third person pronouns as a boy. Now this, this needs a little bit of explanation. Third person personal pronouns, I can say this as a language teacher, 
they're never used to address someone directly. Okay, I don't say, hi Rachel, how is she going today? I say, hi Rachel, how are you doing? I use the second person pronoun. When she said this, when she came to see me and said, I heard that you've referred to me as a girl outside of class, my response was, well, let's stop there, let's get some things straight. First of all, I like you, and I like who you are and the things that make you who you are. I'm glad you're in French class, and we're not supposed to say this, but you're one of my favorite students. I think I find you charming, I find you witty, I like your sense of humor, and you happen to be really good at French. And second of all, your adoption of this new identity, it's a big transition. It's a big transition, so uh, extend me a little bit of grace. We left that meeting and she was satisfied. And as she told her mother as much. Her mother confirmed that she was satisfied with our meeting. And the very next day, I went to my assistant principal and I explained in detail the conversation I had with the student. And I also explained my position, which was, I respect this student's right to adopt this new identity. I respect the right of her family to believe the same, but I can only follow them so far. I cannot in good conscience refer to a girl as a boy. I was told that not only would I proactively use male pronouns for the student in her presence, but that I would use male pronouns to refer to her no matter who was present, even if it was just another colleague behind closed doors or in a break room. I was given an official reprimand for not using the appropriate pronouns. And I was told that this was the first step in a series of steps that would lead to my termination. So the morning of October 31st, that day we had class. And because it was Halloween, uh, we had a special kind of Halloween lesson about the catacombs of Paris. We have a set of virtual reality goggles at West Point because I found a website where you could do a virtual tour with the virtual reality goggles of the catacombs. You could kind of walk through the catacombs. We went out in the hallway just outside my classroom, give them some more room, and one student wore the virtual reality headset. The other student would guide them so that they wouldn't run into things. As I'm supervising, I notice that the transgender student, her partner's not paying attention, and she's about to run into a wall. And so as a reflex, I shouted out, don't let her hit the wall. And I remember at that very moment, I've actually put my hand in my mouth. I was like, shoot, you know, uh, I've been trying to avoid female pronouns, but it's bound to happen. It was in good faith. I was trying to keep her from running into something. Regardless, by the end of the day, I get summoned to the principal's office and I was put on administrative leave. After that week, I had to go back to see the superintendent who had prepared an ultimatum. The ultimatum said that in order for me to be allowed back in the classroom, that I would have to proactively use male pronouns to designate the students. And that, you know, in any instance, if they suspected that I was using the name instead of he or him or his, that it would be grounds for my termination. I couldn't sign the ultimatum in good conscience. and. The superintendent therefore recommended to the school board that I be
fired. There was a, a long hearing in front of the school board. And after a four-hour hearing, the school board uh, voted uh, for my termination. Okay, so I thought that was a really interesting testimony he gave. Also, again, that was from the Daily Signal. So they're the ones that did that interview with him and put that together. Uh, that was clips from their YouTube channel. There is a follow-up to this. Now, first I want to say, I think he was a little over-accommodating in, in my view. It's like the woke, you have to be completely woke. They, they are not going to allow you even the slightest bit of integrity for your own convictions. You must completely give in to what they want you to do, or they will continue to harass you and get you fired and ruin your life as much as possible until you completely give in and talk the way they want you to talk. It's really, really sad. The Christian Post put out a um, follow-up to this. A Christian teacher in Virginia who was fired for refusing to refer to trans-identified student by using male pronouns, even though the student is female, has appealed his case to the Supreme Court. And Alliance Defending Freedom is the organization that is backing him in this suit. Peter went above and beyond to treat the student with respect, including using the student's preferred masculine name. Again, that's something that I probably would not even have done. And avoiding pronoun usage in the student's presence. This was never about anything Peter said or didn't say. It is about a school demanding total conformity in utter disregard for Peter's efforts and his freedoms under Virginia law, said Mr. Langhofer, who is the lawyer from Alliance Defending Freedom. So if you notice, it doesn't matter how accommodating you are and trying to be, you know, um, trying to give in a little and trying to work with somebody in that situation. It doesn't matter. You don't, you, don't have, you don't have a choice. You either have to stand your ground or you have to completely give in because there's no compromising to them. And the reason I say that I don't think that I would have wanted to use the other name for the student is because that student needs help. And no one in the student's life is going to them and saying, this is wrong. This isn't good, and I'm not going to participate with it in any way. And that wouldn't be to be mean to the student. That would be to help the student. Now, if you hear in the background, there's a lawnmower that has started across the street. So you may, you may hear a little bit of lawn mowing going on. I apologize for anything like that that happens. What you couldn't see about this teacher is this teacher was really popular. One of the things that happened after this firing happened or this reprimand or whatever it was, uh, a whole bunch of the students got together and led a protest and had a walkout in support of the teacher. He was very popular. He made his classes very interesting. He wore silly hats. He had them do activities. He wasn't a sit there and lecture them sort of teacher. And they all just loved him. And you can tell he is a very kind and accommodating sort of personality. So the students said, no, we're not going to be okay with this, and they walked out, and good for them. Another follow-up I wanted to say was Mr. His name is Mr. Flaming, I think. Um, the suit was dismissed by a circuit court first, 
And now, uh, September 3rd, he filed the appeal to the Virginia Supreme Court. So that's where it stands at this point. So the next thing I want to talk about is the CDC. So the CDC has taken over a lot of our society and tried to wield power over us in so many ways. Um, now they are saying that they're going to tell us how to speak. This last teacher was told, you can't speak the way you want to, even in the break room. You can't refer to this student in the way that you want to refer to this student, even not in the student's presence. They were telling them how to speak. The CDC is doing the same thing. And I had to bring this up to you. They have tried to close up churches. They have closed businesses. They have closed schools. They have tried to mandate masks and have been successful in doing so. They have told us how many people we can have over to our home. They, can t they have told us when we can have them and how many. That's what they've told us. Not that I've paid any attention to that. And I hope most of you haven't either. They have told the transportation industry how and when they can transport people and what people must wear during the time that they are transporting them. The CDC has done this. And, of course, now they're trying to push the va vaccine mandates. And even a judge took away the rights of a mother, the custody rights of a mother, because she didn't want to get the vaccine because she had problems with vaccines in the past. So she didn't want to get the vaccine. And he took her custodial rights away. Now, that was appealed and she got him back. Oh no, I don't even think it I don't even think it was appealed. I think the outcry is what happened and the judge reversed his decision about it. But all of that came from the CDC and the mandates the CDC is trying to push. The CDC is even saying that racism is a serious public health threat. That's in quotes. The CDC has pushed surgery for minors and giving them drugs to change, try to change their gender, which the CDC of all places should know that's not possible. It's not healthy. It's not good to do that. And now what they're doing is they're saying this racism is a public health threat so that they can then, everything's racist, right? So they have to uh, protect us from that racist, serious public health threat, right? And so then they've got to make more mandates and wield more power. Well, now they're trying to tell us how to speak. And they wanted all of their materials to speak or to be read in this way, to be written in this way. This is the reason that many of us have such a hard time taking the CDC seriously. Because they aren't serious in the way that they do things. They just aren't. Because there's no sense to it. And I wanted to say common sense to it. But common sense is so rare, isn't it? It's, it's not as common as it used to be. So here is some of what they want us to say. Instead of saying disabled, we are supposed to say people with disabilities. Because disabled is uh, putting them down. But people with disabilities isn't. So we're more sensitive, see. Um, Instead of differently abled, afflicted, handicapped, or confined to a wheelchair or wheelchair bound, we're not supposed to say any of those things. We're now supposed to say people who are deaf or hard of hearing or who are blind or have low vision. So if you want to call someone deaf, you aren't supposed to call them deaf. You're supposed to call them people who are deaf or hard of hearing. 
And if they're blind, you don't just say they're blind. They're people who are blind or have low vision. Instead of saying that they're handicapped, they're people with an intellectual or developmental disability. So instead of handicapped, they're people with a intellectual or developmental disability. And people who are in a wheelchair, you have to say people who are in a wheelchair or a mobility device instead of wheelchair bound or confined to a wheelchair. Now see, that is where we're getting so ridiculous and picky to where they try to control everything we say. And we, we cannot allow that. The next, if they're drug, user, drug users, drug addicts, drug abusers, alcoholic, alcohol abusers, people taking prescribed medication, persons who relapse, or smokers, we are supposed to call them persons who use drugs, people who inject drugs, persons with substance use disorder, not drug, drug addicts or drug abusers, persons with substance use disorders, not alcoholics or drunks or anything like that. Persons with alcohol use disorder. Persons in recovery from substance use alcohol disorder. We could say that. If they, are, if they have relapsed, we aren't supposed to say they've relapsed. We have to say they are persons who returned to use. <laughs> and, and yet we're supposed, to, we're supposed to listen to everything these people say and do what they say. At like little sheep it's just it's just sad the uninsured we aren't supposed to call them the uninsured now they're people who are medically underserved or underinsured or people who have no health insurance but they're not the uninsured we can't use that phrase anymore homeless people are now people experiencing homelessness Persons experiencing unstable, experiencing unstable housing, housing insecurity, persons who are not securely housed instead of homeless. <laughs> I'm going to go out and help the persons who are not securely housed instead of I'm going to go out and do something helpful for the homeless. Um, transient populations, we aren't supposed to call them that either. People experiencing unsheltered homelessness. We can say that instead of just the homeless. Or clients or guests who are accessing homeless services. <laughs> so if they're at a shelter, you can't say they're uh, at a homeless shelter or you can't say they're homeless. You have to say they are clients or guests who are accessing homeless services. So the poor is also, you can't call them the poor or poverty-stricken people. You can't call them that. Now you have to call them people with lower incomes or people experiencing poverty, not poor. They're not poor and they're not poverty stricken. And it goes on and on. I mean, I could keep, I could keep going. Uh, illegals are not illegals anymore. They're people with undocumented status. They are refugees or refugee populations. They are non-US born persons. They're not illegal aliens or illegal immigrants. Or foreigners, you can't use those words. You have to say non-U.S. born persons or foreign born persons. Oh, goodness, it just keeps going on. And, of course, they have the racial things. You can't say Native American, Eskimo, Oriental, Afro-American, Negro, Caucasian, or non-white. You can't say any of that. Uh, there's, they've got, I'm not even going to go into all of them. 
But it, it's this is what I'm saying. I mean, they're trying to tell us every little thing that we can say or not say. And we need to teach our children what free speech means because by the time they grow up, they're not going to have a clue what free speech means. Because right now it's being squelched, isn't it? So next, I want to talk to you about the Bank of America claims that toddlers are racist. And this comes from the New York Post. So the Bank of America Corporation has implemented a racial re-education program that claims the United States is a system of, quote, white supremacy and encourages employees to become, quote, woke at work, instructing white employees to, in particular, to, quote, decolonize your mind and, quote, seed power to people of color. Now, I, I just ask myself, these are bankers. Why do they need to be indoctrinated this way? They, they need to know how to add and subtract, multiply and divide, right? Of course, most of their machines do that for them anyway. They know, need to know how to fill out some forms for people to be able to take out loans and so on. But there's no reason for to be indoctrinated like this. This year, the Bank of America executive Charles Bowman announced a new equity initiative called United in Action in partnership with the United Way of Central Carolinas. According to documents I have reviewed, and this is I being, who is this, Christopher Rufo, Bank of America executives launched the initiative by encouraging employees, employees to participate in a 20-day, 21-day race training challenge funded in part by the bank and built on the principles of critical race theory. On the program's first day, Bank of America teaches employees that the United States is a, quote, racialized society that uses, quote, race to establish and justify systems of power, privilege, disenfranchisement, and oppression. Now listen to this next part. According to the training program, all whites regardless of one's socioeconomic class, background, or other disadvantages, are, quote, living a life with white skin privileges, unquote. I should say unquote every time, but I don't. Even children are implicated in the system of white supremacy. According to the program materials, white toddlers develop racial biases by age three to five and should be actively taught to recognize and reject the smog of white privilege. So, yes, our children are racist from the birth if, if they're white, and if they are people of color, they are from birth oppressed. People of color, on the other hand, can't be racist because racism is used to justify the position of the dominant group and to uphold white supremacy and superiority. Therefore, the discussion guide claims, quote, reverse racism and discrimination are not possible. So that tells me they don't know what the word racism means. Because what it means is to discriminate against someone because of their race, regardless of what the race is. So if a person is black and they discriminate against someone who's white, they are racist. That is true. Just like a white who discriminates against someone who's black or any other color or whatever is a racist too, right? No, to them, you can't be racist unless you're white. On days five and six, the banking giant encourages white employees to, conf 
confront their, quote, white privilege and white fragility and discover where they are on the privilege spectrum. As a part of the program, Bank of America employees take a series of diagnostic tests in which they assess their racial and, racial and sexual identities, check a series of boxes to identify their white privilege and pro-racist attitudes that could contribute to their, quote, white fragility. So I'm not going to go through the rest of this. It, it's, it's all just as woke. And they go through three weeks of this. Bank of America employees. If I were a Bank of America employee, I would totally say no to this. I'm not going to be indoctrinated for three weeks to have a job with you. In fact, I hope some of these employees sue. I, I don't know what kind of suit they are because I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> so I wouldn't know what kind I could give. Maybe you guys do. If you do, write in the comments below. But um, I think they need to sue. And I think they need to say, you're trying to indoctrinate us to work at the bank. Our personal ideas about race or white privilege or any of that stuff should have nothing to do with our job at the bank. So I hope that they say no to that. I hope some of the employees will stand up. But you know what? The problem is people aren't standing up. They're not. They're just giving in to everything. And we're going to lose this culture war if we do that. And that's not good for our children. So next I wanted to mention this. There was a, a magazine, a Forbes magazine article that was deleted because it wasn't going down the narrative of the woke and the politically correct. And right now, politically correct is to be all for vaccines, no matter your age, no matter your risk factors. That's the woke thing. That's the politically correct thing. To wear a mask, no matter what, no matter where you are, if you leave your house, you wear a mask. Even some people think you should wear a mask when you're around your family members and social distance from everyone, including your family members. Some people even go to that extent. But definitely, no matter if you're outside or wherever you are, you got to wear that mask all the time. That's the politically correct thing, especially if you're around anyone. Oh, my goodness. And not only wear the mask, you be vaccinated, you wear the mask, and you socially distance. That's the woke and politically correct thing to do. Well, according to Zach Ringelstein, now, he's not a conservative. I mean, I read his article, but it's, his article is about masks on children, and he is not anywhere near a conservative, it doesn't seem like. But he said in his article that these masks were harmful, and so I'm just reading his article. He is an elementary school teacher and a PhD student at Columbia University trained in trauma-informed instruction. That's what his credentials are. He obviously cr contributes to Forbes magazine sometimes. So. I'm going to read part of the article to you so you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, he's talking about masks on children in school, and I want you to see what he had to say. Until COVID-19 reached America's shores and overnight transformed the American public education system into something un unrecognizable, a system of restrictions and mandates far more repressive than standardized testing ever was. So what he was against, he's against standardized testing, so he kind of talked about that before. He didn't believe in standardized testing. Students in most American classrooms now must wear a covering over their face and stay distance from their peers the entire school day. In many schools, students are forced to play by themselves during recess, 
Even for young, the youngest school children, desks are in rows. Children can't see each other's smiles or learn critically important social and verbal skills. The phrase I hear repeated over and over again to justify masks is, quote, kids are resilient, unquote. But as a male elementary school educator and PhD student at Columbia University trained in trauma-informed instruction, I am concerned that this statement is overly simplistic and misleading. What we should be saying is masks and social distancing induce trauma and trauma at a young age is developmentally dangerous, especially for children who are experiencing trauma in other parts of their lives. Now he goes on to say, psychologists have also often misrepresented trauma as only resulting from isolated events, like the loss of a parent or a car accident. But studies on poverty have helped expand the definition of trauma to ongoing persistent stress or fear when a child is constantly releasing the stress hormone cortisol. According to the American Pediatric Association, Traumas, quote, traumas are defined as events that result in or pose a threat to a person's physical integrity and that cause a reaction of intense fear, horror, or helplessness, unquote. Now that's according to the American Psychiatric Association. Now, I don't always go along with what these associations say. Sometimes they make common sense and sometimes they don't. This makes sense to me. Doesn't it to you? I mean, if you are a child growing up, covering half of your face most of the day, not seeing your teacher's face and smile, not seeing the other students' faces and their smiles, and not being able to converse with them while seeing their expressions and so on. How could that not be depressing? How could that not be traumatizing over a period of time? I certainly think it would be. Forcing children to wear masks or distance themselves from peers not only signals, now this is, he's talking about how long-term fear is, is causing trauma to children. So listen to this. Forcing children to wear masks or distance themselves from peers not only signals that they are a threat to others and or that others are a threat to them, but also takes away the most basic way children calm their nervous system. As Psychology Today reported, quote, facial expressions of others help us to calm our nervous system. But if we don't receive those signals, we might go into survival mode. Now, if you think about that practically, it seems to make sense. Because when someone wants to isolate other another person for whatever reason, even for punishment, they keep them away from seeing other people, even their faces, or like if they're in solitary confinement, they're, everything's closed off to them. And that, the more that's closed off, the more traumatic it will be. If a little bit's closed off for a little bit of time, it's not going to be that big of a deal. But when it goes on and on and on, day after day after day after day, that is traumatizing. He goes on later in the article to say children in masks are also likely to miss out on critical language development, another fundamental area of growth in early years where children from low-income backgrounds already have disproportionate disadvantages. COVID-19 cases among children have increased due to the Delta variant, but according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, 0 to 0.03% 0 
of all COVID-19 cases result in death. So he's talking about once a child has COVID, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, once they have already caught it, then they have a zero to 0.03% of dying from it. And I can give you those statistics from August of 23rd anyway, off the top of my head, uh, the CDC statistics about children out of 73 million children in the United States, 471 had died as of August 23rd uh, from COVID. And that's from COVID in quotes, because that means they had COVID when they died, whether they died of COVID or not. I don't know. And also that includes all children. So that would be, there was a lady last week, I think she was on the news and she was talking about, she wanted vaccines mandated for all children because her children, her child died of COVID. And that's so sad. And I was sad for her. But in the end, her child was a teenager and he was 300 pounds. Obesity is known to be a problem with COVID. So she had her child in a high risk factor from the fact that he was obese. And that's so sad that he died. But that shouldn't make a mandate for all children to get vaccinated. You know, that doesn't make sense, really, does it? So I, I don't agree with mandating vaccines at all. Uh, not to anyone, children or otherwise. Despite sensationalized clickbait news coverage, <laughs> boy, that's true, a child's current chance of death from COVID-19 in America is lower than their chance of dying from a lightning strike or a car accident. And that's true because you can look up the stats because I did. I looked them up. It is. It is less likely that they would die of COVID than a car accident. Uh, and he says a lightning strike. And I looked up a lightning strike too to see, you know, about the, the uh, stats for that. And that was really hard to tell because there were so many different stats, you know. <laughs> But definitely, definitely less likely than uh, them to die of a car accident. But we must ask ourselves, do the benefits of masks and social distancing truly outweigh the long-term psychological, physical, social, and academic harm we are inflicting on a whole generation of American school children? If we care about equity and the most vulnerable members of our society, we at least can't be afraid to ask. Okay, so he wrote that article... And Forbes magazine put it at, out on their, their site, and then they took it down. They took it down because this article doesn't go along with the narrative. That's why. This is this man's opinion, okay? He's a PhD, or he's, in, he's uh, getting his PhD, and part of, it, it, part of his PhD has to do with children and trauma, generally, He's an elementary school educator and a Ph.D. student at Columbia University trained in trauma-informed instruction. So he writes an article about his opinion about that. And that's not, that's not politically correct. You can't, you can't say that. You can't say your opinion if it isn't the government's opinion. I mean, it's like we're in China here. Uh, I, think, I think that's very, it's very scary. When those things are taken down, and by the way, something being taken down, I got to tell you, I had a video out that said what I thought about masks on children. It gave those statistics from the CDC. So I said, okay, 
Here's the risk to children. I laid out the risk to children for serious illness or death from COVID-19. And then I gave my opinion. And I said, this is my opinion. My opinion is that masks shouldn't be mandated on children. And I gave my reasons for my opinion. But my opinion wasn't the right opinion, right? It was, it was against the opinion of the government. And so YouTube took it down. Yeah, YouTube took it down. Um, they may take this one down because I'm saying this is my opinion and my opinion doesn't go along with the government. So maybe they'll take this one down too. I don't know. It's possible. Uh, it's very sad that we don't have freedom to just say what we want to say, that companies try to censor us. And I'm not saying anything outlandish. Okay, there's, there's millions of people that believe the same way I do about this. It's not something outlandish. It's just, here's my opinion. I'm laying out the stats from the government organization. I'm reading them and putting them out there. You know, this is what their stats are. And then I'm giving my opinion. Okay, well, you can't give your opinion anymore, I suppose. It, it's, it's really scary. Next, I have some good news in the culture war. And this is about a program in, I think it was New Hampshire, I believe. Yes, in New Hampshire. And this article I'm reading for is actually from the Daily Wire. And it's called Kids Learn Everywhere, which is so true. And it's so cool. Imagine an education ecosystem where students get academic credit for taking piano lessons attending courses at a science museum, or even playing AAU basketball. AAU, I have no idea what that is. Maybe some of you know, but I don't. <laughs> this is now a reality for families in New Hampshire, and policymakers in other states should pay close attention. The Granite State's trailblazing Learn Everywhere program is finally off the ground, despite state Democrats and teacher unions' previous efforts to kill it. Uh, that's sad that they would want to kill that, isn't it? Originally passed in 2018, the policy allows students to earn academic credit for learning that happens outside the classroom walls. Now, you know, homeschoolers have known that all along, right? <laughs> I've homeschooled, but I've also sent my children to private school, done both, and also did a few uh, classes in public school, not go in there for good, but have, they've taken classes in public school um, before just for specific subjects. And we've known all along that children do a lot of learning outside the classroom, and it's great if they get ac academic credit for it, if it's in a, a kind of a, a, a way that can be measured, you know. Learn Everywhere is the brainchild of New Hampshire Education Commissioner Frank Edelblut, who was inspired by an after-school robotics program led by local engineers in Manchester. What Edelblut observed while watching that program is a rare sight in public education. Kids buzzing with excitement and deeply engaged in substantive learning with members of their community. Commissioner Edelbolt, I hope I'm saying his name right, was bothered by the fact that not all of them would get credit for this program under the state's extended learning opportunities policy, which was deferential to school boards and thus at the mercy of local politics. But thanks to Learn Everywhere, that's all changing as districts are now required to accept credit for state-approved courses. Now, of course, they have to have some kind of um, 
guidelines or regulations to give academic credit because you have to be able to measure it in some way. I still don't like the idea that the government gets to mandate over it, or I guess mandate's not the word, uh, supervise over it. But, you know, I can understand why there need to be something, right? Under the program, both individuals and organizations such as nonprofits, tutors, and museums can apply to the State Board of Education for approval. Applications are evaluated based on numerous factors, including provider qualifications, expected outcomes, and student assessment plans. The Department of Education will also conduct a monitoring visit before a full five-year approval is granted to providers. This inclusive approach to credentialing could open up a world of possibilities for kids to earn school credit outside of conventional classrooms. For example, a local orchestra could set up a music course or a computer programmer could teach kids how to code. Teachers are also free to create their own programs, which might be targeted to disadvantaged students or perhaps teach a skill that they're passionate about. So to be sure, learning everywhere, Learn Everywhere's policy isn't perfect. One problem is that no portion, now this, this blew my mind. This blew my mind. To be sure, Learn Everywhere's policy isn't perfect. One problem is that no portion of the state's $19,283 in per-pupil education funding supports it, meaning families have to pay out of pocket for any program fees or rely on discounts if they can't afford to. Now that just stopped me. I was like, I'm, I'm done reading the article at that point. I was like, each individual student has a $19,283 education funding support from the state. That blew my mind because I thought in a classroom of 25 or 30 students, the amount of money that's given to that one classroom is a lot. And I'm not saying that it shouldn't be well-funded, but seriously, a private school, <laughs> a private school could do a whole lot more than a government school with $19,000 per student. Oh my goodness. I, I wasn't aware of that. Now, I, I learn things as I research for these uh, parenting news and the culture war things. I learn things all the time, which is really interesting. I'm not a know-it-all person. I don't know all, all there is to know. I didn't realize each student was allotted $19,000 per student in New Hampshire. Well, of course, I don't live in New Hampshire. I don't know what it is in Missouri. I'd sure like to know. If you know, put that in the comments below because I'd like to know. Um, but Wow. How great would school choice be if every parent had the opportunity to take almost $20,000 per student, let's round it up, $20,000 per student with them to whatever school they wished? What kind of competition would that create in the schools to have better and better schools? Wow. It would create some pretty, pretty good competition and the education system would go up from there. Another reason why we need to just get rid of public schools and give this this the education system a complete overhaul in my view. So now we're going to do Dimwits and Darlings. Okay, our Dimwit parent for today. I'm really sad about our Dimwit parent for today because actually I think she's probably a good parent in a lot of other ways. I think she is. She looks like she is. Her family looks sweet and wonderful. 
But what she did was just dimwit in my view. And so I, I'm, I'm going to say for this particular dimwit parent, I'm going to say in this instant, she was a dimwit parent. Maybe not always. Her name is Leanne Diamond. And I'm going to show you um, the clip about her. Anytime that you would put your child at risk for something that otherwise wouldn't be risky for them, I think that makes you a dimwit parent, at least in that instance. So we're going to look at what she did. Vaccine distribution well underway in Houston, but the FDA has not approved the vaccines for teenagers or children under 17 years old. It's why Moderna is opening its trials up to kids 12 to 17 and Houston one of 20 cities participating. This is our way of doing our part. 13-year-old Jack Diamond and his mom, Leanne, decided to roll up their sleeves for science. Set an example for other kids and inspire them. Jack is participating in Moderna's teen trial at the SciFair Clinical Research Center. I was a little bit worried and confused about it, but once they told me, I was fine. Both Jack and Leanne don't know if they got the vaccine or placebo, but Houston fights COVID. The group coordinating the trials says teen participants have a greater chance of getting the actual vaccine compared to adults. That means signing your children up for a trial could be the quickest way to get them vaccinated. And then they send you home with an app and a thermometer and you have to check in daily and they have support staff in case anything happens. So far, Jack and his mom have had no side effects. Leanne's even signed up her younger child for a wait list. When the studies open up to participants age two and up, which is the next step and they believe it's going to be March, uh, we're hoping he gets selected as well. To sign up your child and learn more, just go to HoustonFightsCOVID.com. They're eligible for up to $1,000 for participating and must be in good health. Researchers hoping to sign up thousands in our area. The faster the data is collected, the sooner vaccines will be rolled out to pediatric populations. Okay, so my question would be, why do vaccines need to be rolled out to pediatric populations when the risk from serious illness or death is so very low? I don't see that as any big emergency. In fact, I don't see that as good. Personally, I don't. But the dimwit part of this is that she put her children at she put her child at risk, and maybe her children. I didn't see whether in March she she got the other child into the trial. I would have a little more sympathy for the idea if it were a vaccine for an illness or disease that I you know something that would really cause a child serious problems. Like if you get this as a child, you're likely going to have some problems like polio, something like that. And, and it's likely that your child is going to get it because it's spreading around anyway, right? Say something like that. Then I could have a little more thought of that makes sense to maybe work with the vaccine because the vaccine's going to help your child. You believe the vaccine would help your child, and then you're going to do that. But this isn't that way. This is a thing that is probably not going to hurt her child at all if he gets it. And putting an experimental drug in him, and, and you could tell he had to be talked into it. He, he made very clear that he was kind of afraid of it, and they had to talk him into it. I just, I just think that's very sad. And like I said, I think that she's probably a good mom in a lot of other ways, but this was a dimwit thing to do. I, I totally have to stamp her a dimwit parent because of that.
I don't, I don't like to stamp a dimwit parent a dimwit parent when I think that they're really good in other ways, but that's just a dimwit thing to do. Okay, so next, um, I have the darling parent, and you guys are going to recognize him. Earlier, we talked about how obesity is one of the issues that can cause COVID to be uh, really a risky situation for anyone, and that would include children. So if your child is obese, that's something that you need to work on to help them out and get them, keep them away from anyone who has COVID because that could be seriously risky for them, but it could be for anyone, anyone with obesity issues. I'm not even going to tell you who this guy is because you're going to, a lot of you will know. We'll talk about it after. Uh, Dr. Tim Logeman says school is essential. Kids are eating ultra processed foods locked in the home and it's making them sicker. A literature review on effective strategies for childhood obesity prevention published in May of last year lends credence to Logeman's claims. Um, according to a team of 19 European researchers who reviewed more than 400 studies from 2000 to January 2015, school-based programs to mitigate childhood obesity were found far more effective than seminars directed at, at parents to teach healthy living at home. Okay, so there are there are assumptions here that that uh, that I don't agree with, and one of one of the assumptions is that uh, parents are incapable of uh, preventing their children from becoming fat. Or the idea that that parents need seminars in the first place is more effective than a seminar. Like I don't need my children are not obese. I don't need any seminar for that. They don't they don't drink uh, soda hardly at all. They don't have a lot of junk food in the house. And uh, they, they, we, we, they get plenty of exercise. They run around and play all the time. We're always making sure that they're, we, get, we get them off the couch. They don't have phones. They don't sit around the couch all day looking at phones. Limit the TV time. And all the rest of the time, we say what my parents said to me when I was a kid. And I said, I'm, I'm bored. Well, you can go outside and play or you could do some chores. What do you think? Well, those are your two options. If you're bored, I'll, I'll help you out. I'll, I'll make sure you're not bored anymore. So I don't need any seminars. I, I already know that. The idea that, uh, that kids need to go to school so that they don't become obese is absurd. Okay, those of you who know who he is, <laughs> that's my favorite podcaster, Matt Walsh. And I liked what he said. And this is the reason I like him, because he's so straightforward. But he said... Here's what the problem is that is supposed to be this huge problem. Huge and uh, that's a play on words, isn't it? Oops. It's a problem. Here's how to solve it. It's super simple. Be a good parent. Do what you're supposed to do as a parent. That's what he said. That's what he does. This will solve the problem and it's really simple. I love that. That's why I love what Matt Walsh. He's on the Daily Wire every day, Monday through Friday. So uh, I suggest you give him a listen. Uh, he's definitely my inspiration. Um, I just enjoy him so much. I try to focus in on the parenting news and things that have to do with parenting and school and things like that. But he talks about all kinds of issues. So I think he's awesome. And so I want to stamp him as the darling parent for today. Something else I want to tell you before the, we end here is I wanted to remind you that on Monday mornings, on my other channel, the Mommy Answer Lady channel, I do have my 
free online parenting course. A new lesson comes out every Monday morning. It's only five to 15 minutes. I think the last two are up now and it goes along with my book, How to Train Your Child to Behave, which is also available on Amazon. And I hope it to be available uh, as an audiobook coming up in the next few months. I have to get that together, but that's the plan. If you enjoyed today, please subscribe. It helps you because it tells other parents about this news so that they can also be inspired, hopefully, to stand up in the culture war and be heard. The more parents that know about what's going on, the more likely it is they're going to stand up with you and fight this culture war for our children. Parents, we can win this. Thanks for watching.